You can turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. I don't know if you've ever missed it. If you've ever missed it, I've missed it. If you've maybe missed a train because you were there at the wrong time or the wrong place. That's happened to me a few times. Maybe you've missed a joke just because you didn't get it. Just didn't make sense, went right over your head. Someone said it too quick. Maybe you missed the idea. Maybe you missed what your spouse was really meaning when they said certain words. When you miss it, you, you, you then uh, act a certain way. You act like everything is normal. And one time I was standing at a train platform, and it was the totally wrong one, and I just missed it. I wondered, like, well, this train's like 25 minutes late. That's not normal. Well, I'd missed it. I was in the wrong place, wrong time, but I didn't know any different, so I just acted like I was cool, and I wasn't going to ask anybody because uh, that's most men. They don't ask, right? They just, well, I'll find a new way. Uh, and I've made that mistake a few times and bought myself a few extra hours on a travel. But when we miss it, we act a certain way. And so here in our passage today, we're going to see a couple of groups of, of people who missed it. And because they missed the whole thing, they kept acting in a certain way. It's the disciples of John and the Pharisees, the religious leaders and the super religious of the time. They missed it. They missed the point. They missed the whole idea. And so then they were frustrated with Jesus and his disciples because they thought, those guys have missed it. And so because there was a misunderstanding of who really was in the right, these Pharisees begin to accuse Jesus and his disciples. Let's pick it up in, in Mark chapter 2. I'm going to read from verse 18 just to 22. Hear God's word. It says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and, and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can a wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for if he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But the new wine is for new wineskins. Now, if you take that response of Jesus to the question, why are you and your disciples not fasting? And he goes on to talk about a wedding feast, and he's talking about wineskins. Well, what does it all mean? And, and, and this patch and the unshrunk cloth, uh, the cloth. What does it all make sense with, to reply to this question about fasting? Well, you see, these people had missed it. They had missed it altogether. They were still trying to live out all of the religious rules that even were heaped on top of the original uh, text of God's word. They were trying to keep up with all the rules and the regulations, the, the holiness code, how to be holy, 101. And, and they were keeping up with it, and they missed the fact that Jesus, even in chapter 1, it says he came and he preached saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Like, it's come. The thing you're anticipating, the thing you're, you're living your life preparing for, it's arrived. And these people are still trying to, uh, you know, we're going to be holy enough so that when God finally comes, 
He's going to see us and notice us and we're going to be his best friends. But Jesus is preaching the fact that he has come. And so they've missed it. They're looking for this Messiah on a horse who's victorious king. And he's going to notice them because they're holy, holy, holy. And there's Jesus who comes not on a horse, but a humble babe and who's living this life of humility and not taunting himself all over the world. And he's not noticing the Pharisees as his best friends. So they've missed it. They're looking for the wrong guy. And so they keep living the certain way. They're holding up this fast. Now, we know from other texts in the gospel accounts that the religious Pharisees, the super religious, fasted twice a week. Now, fasting, of course, in their time and even for us is uh, withholding yourself from food and sometimes drink for a day or a period. So Jesus, we know already in Mark's gospel, has fasted for 40 days. He did not eat for 40 days. And in here, uh, these disciples would fast. Uh, John's disciples and the Pharisees would fast twice a week to be super spiritual. What was the point of fasting? Why would a person fast to begin with? It's a good question to ask because the, most of the time the reason we in our current day and age fast is for a health test. You go to the doctor so you've got to fast. Other than that, most people do not opt to fast. Well, why not? What, what is fasting all about? Is fasting done away with? As Jesus says, like, well, they don't need to fast. Is it done away with completely? Or is there still some benefit to fasting? Well, we'll find out the reasons that we see throughout the Bible, the different uh, reasons that people would fast. The first was to lament, to lament, or, or penitence. They were, they were broken over something that was wrong, either in their heart or their life or the world. They were just broken before God and questioning God. Why is this happening? So they would fast. They'd have a whole day where they wouldn't eat. And they would just be um, normally associated with weeping and confession. And, and as the Bible describes, if you've ever read the term wearing sackcloth and ashes, they, they visibly were seen to have been lamenting over something. They were, they were begging God to answer why this might be. True biblical lament does not um, discard tears. In a season of question, in a season of pain, the Bible doesn't say put away your tears and trust God. It, it, it says, come with your tears. You look at the Psalms and David, even I read earlier, the Psalm 42, David is lamenting. Oh, he says, why are you downcast, O my soul? He, he's recognizing the true reality of his depression and his, his pain. But then lament also uh, is, is not finished with crying. It, it goes to hope. It doesn't mean the crying is done away with. So true lament is an omission of the pain, but also a trust in God. Even if the pain remains, God is still good and you can still hope in God. And so that's one reason people would lament. Esther, in the book of Esther, for example, when, when Mordecai had heard that, that Haman had made this declaration that all the Jews, women and children, were to be killed. He was broken. He was broken. Think of that. Think of how heart-wrenching that news is that, that now there is a decree that this people group will be wiped out for no other reason other than the fact that they're Jewish. And so Mordecai's broken. The whole area declares a fast. It says in, in uh, Esther 4.3, and, and in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews. 
with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. They were broken. They were broken before God, not understanding the pain that they were in, even in hearing that their life was meaningless. Their life was worthless in this world. They were broken, so they fasted. And they begged God to just meet them in their hearts and in their lives. They, they fasted. Another example is in Joel chapter 2. It says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. The people were in sin. And he says, now that you've seen it, you've seen how you've broken relationship with me, fast and lament. Be broken over it, but in that, be fasting so you can feel more. And you know that if you are fasting uh, on purpose, you feel it. You notice every growl in your belly when you are fasting on purpose. And that's intentional. And so it became a spiritual exercise to be reminded of when I feel the pains of hunger, it either leads me desperation in God or it reminds me of my, my need in this world. It reminds me of brokenness here. That's why people fasted in their lament was just to draw themselves into a deeper um, awareness of themselves and of God. And so that they might relate to him better. And as God even said to them, fast so that you may repent. But sometimes fasting was done with insincerity, with hypocrisy. It was done as a show so that other people would say, whoa, you're really holy. Because if I told you I fasted three times a week, you probably be thinking, you might not say it, but you might think, whoa, that's really spiritual. Right? And so that's what the Pharisees thought. Well, if, if people know that we're fasting... They're going to think we're really spiritual and we're really holy, even though we got garbage in our hearts. doesn't matter. If we can put on enough of a show on the outside, we're going to be holy to everybody. So that's what the Pharisees did. They always were putting on a show, always trying to have people hear their prayers. And, and look, notice me, I'm going to the temple. Look at me, I'm reading my Bible. And one of those things they did to say, look at me, was fasting. But they didn't just, because here's the thing, I don't know if you're fasting today. How would I know that unless you're like moping and lo you look hungry and you're mentioning that you're hungry and you're like, you know, so it has to be um, put on as a drama on the outside to notice that someone's fasting because fasting is a secret thing in your heart and your mouth. So I don't know unless you dramatize it, but that's exactly what the Pharisees did. They would put on such a show. They would look worn out and they would look exhausted and you could tell they were hungry. And so you want, they must be fasting today. And you see that twice a week in these men. Those men are so holy, but they were so insincere. They were so full of hypocrisy and Jesus called them out. Matthew chapter six says, and when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces so that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they receive the reward. And what Jesus is saying there is what they wanted was the attention of people. They got people's attention, but they didn't get God's attention. He says, yeah, they got it. They want everybody to look at them and praise them and think they're great. They got that. But that's, that's not the sincerity. That's not the true heart behind it all. He says, so Jesus points out the insincerity in this fasting uh, that... There was a problem. And so here, we don't know whether these Pharisees in this passage were fasting to be seen 
but it's highly likely. So that's one thing. Lament is one reason that people would fast. Another in the scriptures is supplication or, or asking God for something, begging God for something. Um, King David, when his son was sick and to die, he fasted. 2 Samuel 12, 16. Therefore David sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted. And he went in and he lay all night on the ground. He was just asking God. And so sometimes people fasted in order to have extended seasons of just prayer and asking, begging God to be near to them. In Nehemiah 1, uh, Nehemiah mentions that he called a, a fast so that, that God would hear and that, um, that, that as he confessed sin, that he would uh, express himself truly and deeply. He, he, he was asking God to be remembering his covenant with his people, even though they'd walked away from him. He was asking God to give success in his ministry. He was asking God to give mercy. So he's asking God. And so in, in his asking, he, he fasted so he could spend that time in prayer instead. When the first church in the book of Acts appointed elders and pastors, it says in Acts 14, and when they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord whom they had believed. And so, again, they were just asking God to do something. And so they were fasting during that season. So supplication is the second reason. Lament might be one. Supplication, asking God for things. Uh, and then the third reason that someone might fast is in mourning. In mourning, in grief. Example is when King Saul and Jonathan died. And David, it says in 2 Samuel 1, and they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel, all of them, because they had fallen by the sword. So, so when someone died, there was often fasting. There's just a recognition of the, the deep feelings and emotions that, that now you could feel beyond the, the, the energy loss from weeping, but you could feel it in your soul. When you fasted, that's often what was related to fasting was mourning. And so then you see here these religious, super religious Pharisees are fasting twice a week. And you wonder, what for? Are they mourning? Are they asking God for something? Are they lamenting their sin? What are they doing? But they missed it all. And it seems to me that the Jesus response is pointing to them that their fasting seems to be about mourning. Like they're just grieving something. And they're just kind of putting on some sort of show. Because in his response, uh, and in, in Matthew's account, he doesn't even say that they were, um, that the guests, when he's speaking of this wedding in verse 19, the wedding guests will fast when the bridegroom is with them. He, he mentions they'll mourn. Like, you can't mourn when the groom is there. Obviously, uh, these early traditions of their weddings was they would have the original ceremony and then they'd celebrate for seven full days. They would party, they'd have meals, and they would just all be together for seven days. The whole thing. And so Jesus' point is, like, during that season, there's no crying for the groom and the bride. There's no, like, oh, I'm longing for something. I'm not asking for anything. I'm not lamenting anything. It's a season of joy, is what Jesus is saying. When the groom is present, when the wedding festivities are happening, it is a joyful season. When this thing has come together, it's a time for joy, not for mourning. And so Jesus, as he said to them in verse 19, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? 
Like, why would they be fasting and mourning and refusing food when there's a celebration happening that is good and right? And then he says, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And then verse 20, then the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. You can go back to if you've got something to be sad about. Because Scripture tells us, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Well, a wedding feast and a wedding ceremony is a time for rejoicing. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And so he says, as long as the wedding celebrations are happening, this is a season of rejoicing. Now, he is pointing to himself, in some senses, as the groom. Because he, in verse 20, he's referencing, he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast in that day. They will weep in that day. There will be mourning in that day. He says, but now is not the season. Right now is a season of celebration, a season of coming together, a season of, of union. And Jesus is saying, you've missed it. You're mourning. But this is a season of joy. This is a season of joy. The kingdom of God is at hand. Forgiveness is here. Why are you weeping? He says, you're in the wrong season. You're in the wrong place. These Pharisees are just putting on this show of weeping and longing after who knows what, mainly attention. And Jesus points out that they got it all wrong because the groom has come. And then he goes on in, in verse uh, 21 and, and speaking of this patchwork job. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For if he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. So, it's interesting because that's common sense, right? You don't put brand new material. That even if you think about color differences, fading. But the new material is not going to mesh well with the old material. It just doesn't fit. It doesn't match up. So Jesus' gospel of repentance and forgiveness of grace alone does not match up with these ones who want to live in their self-righteousness. He's saying, your way... Of, of trying to, this old way of trying to like have self-righteousness and you keep a tally of how holy you are before God. He says, that won't match up. It won't match up with the gospel. The good news, the new has come. And the new will not mesh with the old. You cannot just sew it into your self-righteousness and say, oh yes, my self-righteousness and my life and all of my good deeds plus Jesus, now I'm good. He says, that's never going to work. It's going to destroy one. You cannot have both. The outward religion worn so proudly by these Pharisees, he says, it's not going to work with an inward religion of heart. He says, your outward um, show that you put on doesn't work with an inward salvation. They won't fit together. Behold, the new has come. It doesn't fit. The, the, these, this pomp, proud Pharisee will not fit with the humility that it takes to accept the gospel of Jesus. This pride and this self-righteousness does not mesh with and does not fit with, cannot be patched together with the gospel of humility that says, I am unworthy completely, but God is good. Those two things don't mesh, and that's what Jesus is saying. You can't take these two systems and put them together. You can't mesh them. This outward religious show, trying to show that you're better than others, trying to be noticed as the most holy there is. All of this self-righteousness, it stained these Pharisees. It stained them. Isaiah 64, 6, a well-known verse, 
says, We have all become like ones who are unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment or a filthy rag. All of our righteous deeds are like a filthy rag. These Pharisees are stained, and they just want to try to cover it up with more righteousness. And it's really beyond fixing. This old garment is so ratted and and broken that it can't just be mended. The heart, our hearts, are so broken without God that it just can't be mended. Like, just just patch up the old maid. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. We're so broken beyond repair. Our sins are so sin-stained, so sin-filled that we can't just add some good deeds and add some self-righteousness and try to think that that's going to erase who we are before God, offensive to God. It's like someone coming to fix a mold problem in your house and just covering it up with wallpaper. It doesn't make the problem go away. The mold will spread. And so these Pharisees are just trying to do that. More wallpaper. More deeds over top of the, the wretchedness of their hearts. Let's just cover it up. Let's just put on a show. As long as we look good. And Jesus says you can't patch up a broken heart. You can't. You can't try to patch it up with the goodness that you think you have. It has to be new has to be fully new so then he goes on to this last example of the wineskins there verse 22 he says and no one puts new wine into an old wineskin for if he does the wineskin will burst and it'll be destroyed so new wine is for fresh wineskins you can't just cover up the old you can't just add new things instead you need a complete transformation it can't just be my old self plus jesus and now i'm good because guess what the old stuff old self is mold it's disease it's leprosy it's going to soak through again and again and again and so if we try to present that person to god he sees right through the stains he sees right through the apparent self-righteousness he says it's stained so what needs to happen then we need to be new of heart We need to have this new wine, the new covenant, the relationship and the union with God through Jesus go into a new heart. Well, how do we get that heart? Well, Ezekiel tells us, 36, uh, verses 26 and 27, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I will do it. I'll give you a new heart. Don't just try to patch up the old. Don't just be resistant and go, yeah, well, just I like holding on to who I am and all of my desires. God says, that won't do. A new heart will do. And I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. And I'll give you a heart that feels and a heart that can obey and a heart that wants to please me. Not just a heart that wants to appear good. And a heart that appears to be okay before God. He says, that's not enough. You need a heart transplant. And I'm going to do it. Because Jesus points out here, you can't mix the old with the new. It won't work. So he says, he's pointing out to these disciples of John and the Pharisees, you've missed it. You've missed it. You think that you can have all the old way of your self-righteousness and your good deeds and try to add the Messiah to that and that you're welcome to God? He says, that's not it. You need to be made new, completely new. 2 Corinthians 5.17, another well-known verse says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
He is a new creation. A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old has passed away, dead, dead. It's gone. And that's exactly what we need. And that's exactly what we get in Christ. He, he is this new wine. He is the new covenant. He is the one who comes in his own blood to, to seal our relationship with God. It is him who comes, but it can't be added to what's old. As Galatians says, um, that we must crucify ourselves with God. In Romans chapter 6, same thing. But Galatians 2, 20, where it says, the life I live now is not, is not me, but I've been crucified with Christ. So the life I live, I no longer live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. And so it's only then that when we admit that we need him fully, we need to be new, and we come to him by faith and say, I believe. I believe what you did is sufficient. I believe who you are. I believe that I need to be made new. Make me new. And, and as David, as I read in Psalm, in Psalm 42, just, just hope in God. Hope in God. Don't, don't hope in, in a system. Don't hope in, in good deeds. Don't hope in your old self. Hope in God. That's where we hope. And that's what Jesus himself is saying here is they've missed it. Where is their hope placed? in themselves and in their religious activities. He says, you've missed it. That's not sufficient. It's not going to work. You need to be made new. This old man is not suitable. It does not fit with a new heart. So you'll be made new by Christ. And so when they're asking about fasting, and Jesus says it's much, much deeper than that. The reason they would be fasting is for some religious exercise but he says, let's go deeper. Why do people fast? He says, they're fasting because they're sad or they're mourning or they're asking God. He says, that's not what it's about. He says, it's about being made new in God. It's about being made new, Don't, not about some religious exercise on the outside. So he's not pointing to the fact that they're not truly mourning or they're not truly lamenting. He just pointed out to the fact that if it's an outward religion, it's not sufficient. He goes deeper and deeper and deeper in his analogies. A celebration a newness, and a complete transformation. That's where Jesus is pointing them to, and so he says, they've missed it. And by God's grace, if we have seen Christ and we have accepted him as our Savior and he has made us new, we've not missed it. So then we do get to celebrate and we do get to mourn. We can fast and ask God for things. Fasting is greatly beneficial in terms of a time in prayer and de dedication. Every time you're hungry, it reminds you to pray. Every time you're hungry, it reminds you to pick up the Bible instead. Spend your lunch hour reading instead of eating. There is benefit in fasting, but we don't do it to try to earn favor with God. We don't try to do it to try to impress other people. We do it because he has made us new. And we want to be close to him. We want to be near to him. And so that's what he says. He says, don't think about the outward religious activity if your heart is still old. You can try to put on a show, he says, but you will not fool God. And it's only going to break apart. And that's the beauty. It's because it's not just a, I'm going to destroy everything you think and believe with nothing from there. Instead, he invites all who are, who are weary of trying to keep up, trying to keep up with all the good deeds, trying to keep up with their self-religion, trying to stay on top of their asking God to forgive them, but yet 
don't actually want to be made new. He says, come, you're, you're tired of that. Come, I will, I'll give you rest. I'll give you eternal rest. You can hope in me forever. Don't try to just keep up with religion. Unite yourself to me with a new relationship in Christ. And so then he calls his people to do that. He calls us to do that. To, to, to not focus on the outward religion, but to focus on the inward relationship that is completely made new by him and him alone. And that's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. The, the wine represents a number of things. Number one, the blood that was shed on our behalf. And then number two, the new covenant. The, the covenant, this, this new celebration, this new relationship, this new marriage between Christ and his people. And it's not based on your good deeds are mine. It's based on our humility in coming to him and saying, I'm broken and I need you and you've done it all. And so that's what we partake in. We partake in the Lord's Supper. His body was broken on behalf of us as humans and his soul was uh, agonized because before God, the wrath of God was poured out on him. So that at the end of the day, that new covenant can be for you and for me, for all who would embrace him we might come to him and be made new and new not just for a moment but new eternally and it doesn't mean that we're in the blink of an eye a different person and that uh, we won't struggle with sin and we won't do outward religious things wrongly and have bad motivations for what we do we'll still do all that but at the end of the day we have a a new wineskin a fresh wineskin a heart that wants to please god a heart that that beats for him I want to, my desires are, are for him and for his glory. And so I'm grieved and I can lament all the more my sin. I'm sad when I offend God. But not because I think he doesn't love me anymore. Not because I think it kicks me out of heaven. But because he loves me and he gave himself for me. And that ought to hurt me. And so that's why we are transformed in such a way that, that he says, I'll give you this new heart and this new spirit. And that transforms us completely. So to these Pharisees and John's disciples, they had missed it. Let us not miss it. Let's pray. God, you are a God of relationship. And even though we have broken relationship with you in our sinful hearts and our sinful actions and attitudes, you um, sent Christ to come and to stand on our behalf, to live that righteous life for us so that even when we can ever, we can never be righteous uh, in that way. We can never do enough good deeds to outweigh the bad. Instead, you have made us whole. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus and all that he accomplished in that for us. We pray that as we live our lives, we would be um, really focused and drawn into the, the understanding of who you are in relation to us. Not because of our, our actions and our attitudes, but because of our relationship with Christ. May you uh, give us a fresh understanding of that today. Would you give us a heart that wants to beat for him today? And we just pray that you would be glorified as we live that out. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.